Last month, we began our journey through the letter of 1 Peter, and I was really thankful for Rob's sermon last week on the importance of hope in the Christian life. A hope which isn't found in changed circumstances in this world, but in the ultimate change which will be brought by the future return of Christ. It's not that we shouldn't hope in changed circumstances. Um, It is good and right for us to pray for change. As Emily prayed, as we pray, as you've prayed this week, our circumstances do need to change. Uh, The world's circumstances, they must change if we are to experience the abundant life Jesus promised us. And so it is good and right for us to pray for that change. But that change, the change we really need, the eradication of sin and death from our hearts and from our worlds, from our communities and lives is way out into the future. And so the change that Peter asks us to put our hope in is so far out into the future. He calls us to focus our hope way out. And the contrast between our present circumstances and our future hope is front and center for the apostle. Um, It is the thing that he calls this church to look forward to. And so listen to 1 Peter 1 again. I want to read the text that we've already preached through. And while listening, I want you to imagine yourself in their shoes. Um, I want you to think of yourself maybe as the slave in 1 Peter 2 with an unjust master who may come to church with physical marks of that injustice, limping to worship. Maybe you're the wife in 1 Peter 3 with a wicked husband or you're a citizen oppressed by the magistrate. Close your eyes and imagine you limped your way to church. You carried that story into the room and this is what you hear from the apostle Peter writing from Rome. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What does that do to your experience How does that speak to your bruises, to your hurt? Remembering your your rebirth, remembering the resurrection of Christ, remembering the inheritance, remembering that you by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you rejoice. You rejoice though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In a world where changed circumstances weren't really on offer, uh, those, that category of people, women, slaves, foreigners, they didn't have any leverage in the Roman Empire. And so their hope had to be set out way into the future. It would have been uh, pastoral malpractice for Peter to suggest change, to ask them to put their hope in present change. It wasn't available to them. But think about them now, those same people, those same souls, those ancient brothers and sisters in 2022, they are not oppressed anymore. They are free. They have arrived 
at that hope. They are safe and they are readying themselves to receive the fullness of that inheritance, that future day, what Peter calls the revelation of Jesus Christ, which has not happened yet for them or for us, but is coming. That's the basis of our hope, not anything that can happen today. And so we may not be enduring the same level of hardship. We, we are not enduring the same level of hardship as these brothers and sisters or others uh, today. But that present future distinction is still so important for us to remember if we want our faith to survive. We need to set our hope way far out into the future. And so as we get started this morning, I wanna ask you how far out is your hope set? What change are you living for right now? Are there times this week where you gave up waiting for that hope, where you found shalom in a different way? Uh, you settled for some counterfeit hope. Uh, in kids' ministry this morning, the lesson is about King Saul uh, when he grew impatient with uh, waiting for Samuel, and so he disobeyed God. He made the sacrifice without Samuel. And it reminds us how important it is uh, to wait on God right? Uh, because of his disobedience, uh, King Saul lost his anointing. So for Samuel 13, this is the text that the children are reading. What have you done? Asked Samuel. And Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. And Samuel said, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord God, your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. It is so important that we wait on the Lord, that we set our hope properly in the future. But waiting is hard, especially through suffering, especially when the length of our suffering is undefined. Uh, I think that was raised uh, the other week. Like what's so hard about it is we don't know when it's gonna stop. But Romans 8.24 reminds us, for in this hope we were saved. Not, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait the only way to endure Christian suffering to the end is to set our hope fully on the future. And I just, I so love that Peter included that word, that little adverb, adjective, I'm not sure which it is. Um, but set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. This is why Rob's sermon on hope is so key that we set our hope fully. Often we hedge our bets when it comes to trusting in Jesus, right? We set some hope in him but then we kind of spread it out a little bit. We reason to ourselves, let's not put all our eggs in one basket. I need to diversify my hope portfolio, right? Who and what I'm living for. So I'll hope in Jesus, but I'm also gonna hope in a few other things in case that doesn't work out or to hold me over while I wait. So I put hope in my career or in my home or in my kids or in my weekend. I put hope in my intelligence, in my personality, my health, my relationships. But faith in Christ is exclusive. We are to set our hope fully on the gospel, fully on the grace that is to be revealed. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
And so what Jesus is teaching is just this law of the universe that wherever you place your hope, that is your master. That is what you live for. That is what you're investing in. And that is what you shape your life around. And you cannot serve two masters. It's impossible. But you have to choose one. And so which master will you choose? Where is your hope this morning? Are you setting it fully on the grace that is to be revealed in Jesus Christ on the last day? Are you setting it fully in the future? Well, what does it mean? How do we evaluate whether we're setting our hope? Like how, how would I sort of wonder if that's true of me? What does it look like, practically speaking? And 1 Peter 1 teaches us that setting our hope fully on the coming grace looks like holiness. That's what it looks like. Hope looks like holiness. As 1 Peter 1, 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. A lot of times holiness is misdefined as an expression of transcendence. We'll talk about God's holiness and, and we'll, we'll say that that is how he's so other. He's absolutely other that he is God and we are not. But that's not really what holiness means. That is true of God, that he is transcendent. Um, but holiness is singular devotion. And Rob defined it last week as that which is set apart for honorable use. And so in the Old Testament, Mount Sinai is a mountain made holy. It is set apart, set aside for God to meet Moses and give the law. Uh, the tabernacle and the temple and all the items in the temple, they are holy. They are set apart for the worship of God. And anytime somebody touched them or tried to misuse them, uh, they received the wrath of God because they were set apart for the worship of God. The Sabbath is holy. Right, One day among seven, singularly devoted to worship through rest. Israel was called a holy nation. They were a people that were set apart from the surrounding peoples to be a kingdom of priests, to be an entire people full of priests. And what do priests do? They mediate between the world and God. And so that's what Israel was supposed to do. They were supposed to represent the earth before God and represent God before the earth. And that's why all those rules are so weird and unusual because it was all meant to distinguish them, to set them apart as people singularly devoted to God. Holiness is singular devotion. And holiness is not a word we use very often. And I think probably many of us don't like the word. Uh, we don't want that to be described of us, that we are holy people. But Peter here uses it four times in two verses. So he, he clearly cares about the word and values it. And, and remember the context. Again, these people are struggling. They're discouraged. They're hurting. They're tempted to give up. Put yourself in their place, a beaten slave, a harassed citizen, an abused wife. And Peter says to that person, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. How do you feel about that pastoral response to suffering? As a pastor, that's not what would come to mind for me, admittedly. I don't think I've ever said that to somebody. I've definitely never said that to somebody who's hurting. Be holy as your heavenly father is holy. I'd say something like, hold on, friend. 
I know it's hard, but hold on to Jesus. Press on, endure, keep it up, don't let go. Maybe I would say, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed. And none of that is wrong for me to say. It's not unlike me telling you to be holy, because if holiness is singular devotion, I'm basically encouraging you to stay devoted, to keep up your devotion. And yet, holiness has an important ring to it. It's an important command for us. It has a connotation that says more than hold on, right? And so think about yourself in their shoes, me pastoring, caring, shepherding for you. I say, keep it up. I say, don't let go. And then I say, be holy. And you're gonna maybe wince a little bit at that. I know I would if you said that to me. But holiness is an important word that we should recover at citizens, both for God and for us. And so I was just really challenged this week. Um, What would it look like for me as your pastor to start calling you to holiness? What would it look like for me to start calling myself to holiness? And so I've, I've been saying that to myself this week. Dave, be holy. When I could feel emotions uh, rise around parenting. Uh, when I'm ho- realizing that, man, I'm, I'm looking at my phone so much, Dave, be holy. Be holy as God is holy. What would it look like if when you struggle, when you suffer, when you're wounded, to call you, to set your hope fully on God's grace and to be holy for us to do that to each other so that we would say, brother, be holy at night when no one's looking. Set your hope fully on the grace of God, not on shameful pleasures. Be holy in the morning when you wake up. Be singularly devoted to God. Sister, be holy in your relationship with your parents, with your spouse, with your children, even when they hurt you, because your hope is in God, your devotion is to him. Brother, be holy in your boundaries at work, working hard and faithfully as for the Lord, but also stopping work when he asks you to stop because you work for him. Sister, be holy in your use of time. Brother, be holy in your sense of humor. Sister, be holy in your affections. Be holy in your behavior. Be holy with your pain. Be holy with your struggles. Be holy with your sin. And we can say this because holiness does not mean sinlessness. It means singular devotion. And so to be holy with our sins means to be quick to confess, to be quick to go to the Lord and ask for repentance and faith, to turn quickly, to be zealous, to be made right when we are wrong. And so be holy as God is holy. It means we can be holy with our sin. It also means that we commit ourselves to justice and mercy, As God is committed to justice and mercy, one thing that we've lost in our failure to read the Old Testament and failure to to read it a lot um, is the connection between holiness and social justice. A lot of times in the passage, so be holy um, as I am holy is said many times throughout scripture. It's said especially in Leviticus and a lot of times in the context of caring for the marginalized. That when he's calling Israel to be different, 
He's calling them to be different in the way they treat the widow and the orphan and the foreigner and the oppressed. Peter Gentry writes, a holy nation is one prepared and consecrated for fellowship with God and one completely devoted to him. And this shows itself in two ways. One, identifying with his ethics and morality and two, sharing his concern for the broken in the community. For citizens to be a holy church, to be a holy people, those two things should be true about us that we identify ourselves with God's ethics and morality and that we share God's concern for the broken. By quoting Leviticus in 1 Peter, the apostle is reminding us that the Old Testament law, it still applies, not in the same way, it's not a one-to-one, but it is still um, a word spoken over us that we are to be a holy people. As children of God, we must remain devoted to him. And so the question that 1 Peter 1 asked us this morning is, would you call yourself holy? Do you like that word? And if you don't like it, why don't you like it? Are you pursuing holiness? That is, are you striving after singular devotion to God? Or have you become content with a divided devotion? Is holiness a goal for you? So that you tell yourself, to be holy as God is holy when you're planning your day, when you're going to work or the store, when you're talking with family, when you're suffering. And so I just encourage you to do that as I, I, I wasn't doing that before this week, but I've been just trying to do that more and more in my heart to tell my soul, be holy, Dave. Dave, what is holiness here? Do it. That is what God calls you to do. And I invite you to tell that to me too because I'll, my attention span is short, and so next week I won't remember. And so I'll need you in caring for me to encourage me, man, press on, Dave. Hold on to Jesus. Don't let go. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed and be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Please tell that to me. As a church In suffering, we need to set our hope fully on future grace. And what that looks like is holiness in all our conduct. A righteous commitment to do what's right all the time. No matter who we're with or what the circumstances are, no matter what the cost, no matter how hard or difficult, we remain singularly devoted to God as he remains singularly devoted to us. And that's the key to holiness. Our holiness follows God's holiness. Right, But as, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And so we are motivated to be singularly devoted to God because he is singularly devoted to us. That's what God's holiness means. Again, it's not so much about his transcendence. He is transcendent. He is God and I am not. So that is definitely true of him, but that's not what holiness speaks to. God's holiness speaks to the purity of his devotion, which because of the gospel includes devotion to me. God is singularly devoted and that drives my devotion. And that's where Peter goes in verses 17 to 21. He doesn't linger too much on my holiness. He quickly moves to God's holiness because that's the driver of our behavior. That's the driver of our commitment. 
he unpacks what it means for God to be holy as the reason for our own holiness. And first, he shows how God is devoted to himself. So God's holiness is a commitment to himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are holy towards one another, devoted to their glory and goodness. He is unchanging. He is unwaveringly devoted to his character, right? His justice, his goodness, his love, his power, his wisdom, his perfection. God is devoted to maintaining his perfection, But second, because of the gospel of grace, God mercifully expands that devotion to include us, his wayward children, so that he is as committed to me as he's committed to Jesus, because I have been joined with Jesus. And so that's what I want to move through quickly here in 1 Peter, God's holiness towards me motivates my holiness toward him. So verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And so here we see both God's commitment to himself and his commitment to me, right? First, God is my father, He is my father in two ways, by adoption and by rebirth. I am born with the stuff of Christ. That's what new creation is. The new creation that raised Jesus from the dead raised me from the dead too. And so that means that God is doubly committed to me, right? How can anyone reborn in Christ ever truly die? It's not possible. God will not let it happen because he is unchangingly, singularly devoted to himself and to me. But second there, God judges everyone impartially so that God's fatherhood is not a patronizing fatherhood, right? The kingdom isn't marked by nepotism uh, where unholiness is overlooked. Like we've seen that, you've all seen that in families and jobs and it, it just eats you up, right? whenever a father unfairly favors his children. It's, it's gross and disgusting and it should eat you up. God is not like that. He isn't unfair, right? He judges people impartially. If it were the case that he judged impartially, that he had some, we had some sort of special credit with him, he'd be a terrible God and a wicked father and the new heavens and new earth would be a hellish place, right? It wouldn't be pure, it wouldn't be good. But that's not the way of God. That is not holiness. God is a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. And that's sobering. Uh, The New Testament teaches that you and I, along with all human beings, will be held accountable for what we do and don't do in this life. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, death, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And so let us not grow weary in doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That is a powerful phrase. God is not mocked. And if that's the case, then first Peter has good advice for us. He says, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Verse 17, and fear here isn't terror, it's, it's respect for God's holiness, that he is a father who judges impartially. And so like a child who knows what to do what's right, even when the father's away, we should do what's right even while we're away, 
Remember who you are. Remember who God is. Live holy lives as children of a holy God. Be holy because God is holy. Be holy because God is your father. Be holy because God is an impartial judge. And then verse 18, be holy because you are ransomed with the blood of Christ. 1 Peter 1, 17, conduct yourself with fear. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. When Peter asks us to set our hope fully on the grace of God that will be revealed, that's a vulnerable position to be in, right? To picture yourself at a poker table and you like put all your chips on one number. How are we gonna do that? When we're tempted to sin and when we sin, what we're doing in a way is flinching from full trust in God. We're afraid and so we hedge our bets. And that's because it truly is scary to cast all our cares on Jesus. That is a vulnerable place to not worry about myself, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, trusting that he knows my needs and he will take care of it. That's hard to do, especially while we're suffering because it feels like God is not taking care of me, right? And so how can we be singularly devoted to God the only way that possibly works is if we're convinced that he is singularly devoted to me. And the way that I know that he's singularly devoted to me is because he gave his only son to die on the cross for my sins. He ransomed me even though he owns the universe. He ransomed me with his son's blood. Of course he is devoted to me. There is no possible way that he will let that price be paid in vain. Can you imagine it? To ransom someone with Jesus' blood and then let that person die in hell? There is no possible way for that to be true. God's holiness won't allow it. Not only his love for me, but his love for his own son who he commanded to do such a thing. He's going to honor that sacrifice. First Peter 1 says that you and I were enslaved to death because of our own sin. And all the ways we were taught to rid ourselves of guilt and shame, to make it right, to scrub ourselves clean, they're futile, the ways inherited from your forefathers. And so our days were numbered, retribution was coming, but then God, because of his great mercy, bought us out of slavery. He purchased us from the worthless ways we inherited. He gave us new life, new birth into a living hope. He transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And that means we can be holy because we have no obligation to other ways. Sometimes my struggle with holiness is because I feel beholden to the ways of my forefathers. I feel like I'm still obligated. Um, you saw that in uh, Saul, King Saul. He felt like he had to, to disobey. 
He's, man, there's all these things around me. The Philistines are up here. The people are getting angry. And I hadn't sought out the favor of the Lord. So he thought he was doing a faithful thing. But he was mistaken. And, and, and I can do the same thing where I struggle with holiness because I feel obligated. I feel enslaved. We feel enslaved to what our families expect of us to what our workplaces expect, to what our culture expects, to what we expect of ourselves. Maybe somewhere along the lines, you made a commitment to yourself regarding career or standards of living or marriage or whatever. But God ransomed you from all those commitments. He bought them. Any other commitment that you have, he bought you free from that so that you could be entirely committed to him that you have nothing committing you to anyone else but him. God ransomed you from old ways. You're not beholden to them anymore. You are beholden to God. And so who and what else do you feel compelled to live for? What concerns distract you from concern for God? In that place, remind yourself that you were ransomed, that you were bought, that you are free, you're no longer a slave. All those other masters, they want to enslave you. But God purchased you that you might be a son and daughter. As children of God, we are to be holy. And you weren't ransomed for any old price, right? It's not with perishable things such as silver or gold, which melts under suffering. It's with the precious blood of Jesus. And that too should shape our devotion. My life belongs to God and nothing can separate it. We are God's finally and truly. What's more, God's holiness and our redemption is the outworking of an eternal plan. So verse 20, our salvation is grounded in God's commitment to himself in eternity past, right? He was foreknown, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And so from beginning to end, our salvation is found in God. First Peter teaches us that our salvation involves our holiness. So it does involve our action, our commitment to good works, our commitment to justice but it is grounded in God's holiness. It involves our holiness. It is grounded in God's holiness. We can be holy because God is holy. We can be devoted to God because he is devoted to us. By uniting us with Christ, God has guaranteed our salvation because God cannot and will not lose him. And so it's impossible for him to lose those who are found in him. If I attach myself to Jesus, I'm safe, I'm good, because God is singularly devoted to Jesus. Again, echoing Rob's sermon last week, hope in God is everything. It's the oxygen in the room. And so I want you to ask yourself this morning, where is my hope? Do I hope in God? Is that where my faith lies fully. And how do you know? Ask yourself, am I holy? Am I pursuing holiness? 
Am I increasingly devoted to God as he is forever devoted to me? Am I allowing the various trials and sufferings of today to refine and purify my faith so that with each passing year, I'm more devoted to God than I was before? Or are you in a season marked by less concern for holiness so that you've like spread out your hope just in case? And if that's you, what would it look like to you, for you to set your hope fully on the grace that's to be revealed far out into the future? What would it look like for you to be holy in all your conduct? You are able to be holy. I think some of us come up against that command and because we associate it so much with perfection in a way that the Bible does not, it feels like an impossible command and so we just skip over it. But God ransomed you with the blood of his own son in order that you would be singularly devoted to him so that you could be free from all the other masters that try to make claim on you. You are free, you are able to be holy as your father is holy. And so what would that look like this week? What would it look like this year? What would it look like in the trials and difficulties of life for you to say to yourself, Dave, be holy? God is unwaveringly devoted to you. Will you be unwaveringly devoted to him? Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for Scripture, especially when it speaks in a way that we don't expect. And for me this week, this was a word that I didn't expect was for hurting people. The charge that it would be good news, that it would be comforting instruction to be holy as God is holy. But I pray that we here would receive it as good news, that it is part of the gospel. It is part of the work of Christ. First Peter 1, 2, that we were saved for sprinkling with Christ's blood and obedience to Jesus. Father, I know that so many of us desire holiness. We want it. Help us to know that we can have it because of the spirit, because of you as our father, because of Jesus as our helper. We can be holy. And I pray that that would be true of our church, that we would be a church devoted to you, singularly devoted to you, marked by a commitment to your ethics and a commitment to people on the margins and that we would set our hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed and that other people would join us in that hope. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.